1964, Paul McCartney was staying at the home of his then girlfriend, uh, Jane Asher. Some of you may have seen her cake-baking books. She became an actress and a, f- a celebrity cake-baker. Um, but for a while, she was Paul McCartney's girlfriend. And while he was asleep in her house one night, he wrote a tune in his sleep. And as when he woke up, he still had the whole tune going through his head, the whole verse. So he jumped up and he ran to a piano and he played it. Uh, and he played it again and he played it again. And he was desperate not to forget it. Um, and he somehow wrote it all down. Um, and, and then he took it round the music industry people that he knew. He didn't write any lyrics to start with, um, and it wasn't a a, a typical Beatles song. In fact, they wrote some temporary lyrics for it to sort of nail it into place. And the temporary lyrics were, Scrambled eggs. Oh my baby, how I love your legs. But they're not as nice as scrambled eggs. (laughs) Which obviously is the big hit that nobody ever had. Anybody guess what song it might have been? Well done, sir. Yes. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Um, do you know that's been covered by artists, different artists, 2,000 times. And they even made a film about Suffolk called Yesterday. There you go. About Suffolk amnesia. Um, it's a brilliant song, musically. And that, you know, we could talk about that afterwards for a long time. <coughs> I think it just really captures the angst of a teenage boy who's just broken up with his girlfriend. Um, I don't know whether Paul McCartney broke up with uh, Jane Asher and then wrote the lyrics. I think it might be that John Lennon actually wrote the lyrics and Paul McCartney wrote the tune, but nobody's quite sure. Um, Just imagine the boy sitting in his bedroom with his guitar and he's singing to himself, Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. Now I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. He sits in his bedroom and mopes for the past. He wants to be anywhere except today. Yesterday, when I was running Root Hill, all my troubles seemed so far away. (laughs) You know, yesterday always looks better, doesn't it, than today. Well, that's not what the writer, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, whether it was King Solomon or or someone else, uh, that's not what the preacher says um, here in Ecclesiastes. Um, He actually wants to speak to us about today and tomorrow, not yesterday. Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 was written for young people. The passage I've just read to you, all that stuff about getting old, was not written for old people like me. It was written for people like you. That's why you need it tonight. Um, It's weird, that, because it only ever seems to get read at funerals, which is strange. It needs to get read at youth camps as well. Um, Maybe some of you recognise the the passage in in chapter 12 because it's quite famous um, as, as a description of the processes of old age. It's one of the sort of purple passages of Ecclesiastes. But I want to draw back from that, and, and we will come to chapter 12. I want to look at the whole of chapter 11 and those first eight verses of chapter 12. The last bit of Ecclesiastes spoken by the preacher. And the preacher is saying this to us as he finishes his part of the book. The narrator then speaks about him in, in the final verses. And his message is very simple. Life is short, so use it well. 
Life is short, so use it well. Don't wallow in what yesterday was for you, in what you could have done if you could have yesterday back again. Today, while it is called today, is the most important day of your life. Yesterday, when it's gone, is gone. Today is what you have to face. And the big question for you, I know today is almost over and you're actually thinking about tomorrow and the notices will think about that in a few minutes as well. But today is the most important day of your life, isn't it? How have you used today? How are you going to use tomorrow? I'll come back to this, but Ecclesiastes talks about life as being vanity or meaningless, if you've got the NIV in front of you. And it's the idea of... A cold day, all right? You've got a cold day and you go outside and you breathe in and you breathe out and your breath condenses in the air. And then there's a breeze and it's gone. That is your life. Your life is a breath. Your life is a vapour. You know, you think it's so long stretching out ahead of you. You think it's going to have so much going on in it that you are excited to discover. But actually, it's a vapour and it's very quickly gone. And Ecclesiastes describes life to to us in that way. Sometimes we tend to sort of read that word translated vanity or meaningless and just think that that's entirely what it's saying. No, the original Hebrew word there, it does have that sense of futility. But it also has this sense of of being transient, passing away, a a sort of wisp of wind that's very quickly gone. And I think that's the major um, theme of Ecclesiastes. Life is very quickly going to pass. And the other thing is that it's out of joint. Um, There are some things God has made crooked in our lives that we can't make straight. And that's the language of, um, is it chapter one? Uh, Right right up at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. That there are things in life we can't make sense of. Why are some of us born disabled? Why are some of us unable to have children? Why are some of us bereaved early? Uh, Why are some of the best people taken away so quickly? Why are evil people allowed to flourish? And, And some of those mysteries are what the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with. There is what Thomas Boston called a crook in the lot. A a, a lot of fabric. Here's that you roll out the fabric and all all the threads are running in the right direction. And then there's a bit where it's rucked up. And no matter how you iron it and squidge it and squeeze it, it will never go back. There is a crook in the lot. He wrote a famous book by that title. There's another book plug. There you go. Um, and, and just explaining to us that we are human and there are some things in life we cannot fully understand. And we have to accept that. That is part of what Ecclesiastes is, is talking about. Now, among young people particularly, it's those crooks in the lot that cause so much trouble to our minds, aren't they? We can't explain certain things in our lives. We can't explain the abusive parent. We can't explain the teenager in our school class who's tragically murdered or or, or whatever. Uh, You know, we can't explain why those things happen. But if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes and you begin to despair of life, 
then hold on, because actually the preacher, as he comes to the climax of the book, has a really positive message for us. Life is short, so use it well. And he presents us with three arguments. Here's the first one. Seize the day before it becomes yesterday. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Now, verses 1 and 2 seem a bit strange, don't they? Sounds like feeding the ducks. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And that's even less appetising, isn't it? After many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Well, that opening word, cast, is probably better translated send. Send your bread upon the waters. In other words, trade it. Get involved. Do business. Get out there. Get involved in trade. Take the risk. Make the investment. And after many days, you may see a return on your investment. And in the same way, verse 2 is saying, give a portion to seven or even to eight. Seven is the, is the perfect number in, in Scripture. Um, and it, it's, it's the idea of you know, investing in different companies, spread the risk. Uh, it could be simply be very generous. Um, there's this idea of, of the perfect number seven being a symbol of fullness. You know, so be fulsome in how you get involved in life. Um, Give all you can and then give a bit more. In other words, the preacher is saying to us, are you a person who goes through life risk averse? You're very reluctant about everything. You're very careful. You, You handle everything with a whole load of fear. Oh, I don't know I could do that because I don't know that I could, you know, it might not work. It won't happen. And you hold on to everything you have for fear that you might lose something. Or are you a risk taker who is generous with what God has given them? Do you want to get out there and make the most of every opportunity that God has given you? Lots of lessons to learn from reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is a really, really key one. There are many things in life we cannot change. That's one of the big messages of the book. There are crooks in the lot that we will never straighten out. Some things just happen, all right? Now, they happen under the hand of a sovereign God, but there's nothing you and I can do to change those things from happening. But do we, therefore, worry about them? Do we, therefore, say, well, if that's going to happen, then I just can't do it? I think that's what the preacher is saying here in verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain... They empty themselves on the earth, logically. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Now, you can spend all your life worrying about whether it will rain, but it's going to rain anyway. And if you're out in it, you'll get wet. You know, where does it get to you? Where does it get you by worrying about about these things that are going to happen anyway? Verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, seize the day. Because we are small creatures in God's magnificent creation. And if we don't grasp life's opportunities, we're never going to do anything, are we? Our churches won't grow. Other people won't hear the gospel. Our lives won't get on if we don't seize the opportunities that God gives us. 
Are you the sort of person who has to have everything sorted out in your mind before you do it, before you start? Yeah? Some people are like that, aren't they? You have to be in charge. You have to know all the details. You have to have read all the small print before you can commit to doing something because you need to be in charge of your life. The drastic truth we have to learn from the preacher of Ecclesiastes is that we can't be in charge of our lives. We're not in charge. God is in charge of our lives. And that's why verses 5 and 6 have a repeated phrase. As you do not know, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It's a liberating thing, isn't it, to discover how small we are in God's creation. Yeah? You tonight are a really tiny part of his kingdom, and so am I. You know, we are very unimportant And God's creation is vast. And even the nations of the world are far vaster than we can comprehend. We live in a world that's made by a good God. So let's take risks, says the preacher. Let's inhabit it. Let's do business. Let's make a life for ourselves under heaven. And you can read Ecclesiastes 11, those opening verses, just in that light. Seize the day before it becomes yesterday. That's a very practical, common-sense approach that we can all identify with. But there's a much, much bigger message here in terms of the way that we, we relate to God. You see, we live in an increasingly secular society. Yeah, Society that has pushed God out of the picture, uh, cancelled God. Uh, people live for themselves. Their home is their temple. The focus is all on now. And people are so taken up with themselves that they never risk approaching God. Yeah, that would would be too risky. We don't know what God is like. If we followed him, we'd have to surrender everything to him. Yeah. And therefore, they, they tell themselves that God can't be there if he's allowed this particular suffering to happen to them. Because the kind of God they could believe in wouldn't have allowed that to happen. And they get into all sorts of mental knots when they think like that. What they really mean is this. What is God going to be like if I have to lay my whole life in front of him? Yeah. Maybe you're thinking like that. Maybe you're not a Christian tonight. I don't know. Most of you, the you know, majority of you are completely new faces to me, even though I've done this camp for years. So you're the, you, the new blood, I don't know where you stand before God. But maybe you came on the camp slightly unwillingly and you're just not sure. You're not sure you're going to come anywhere near to this God and get personal with him. Think of the things that will be exposed if you become a Christian. The things you're going to have to confess to God and and be open with him about. Think of the changes that you're going to have to make. And I think lots of people in our society think like that. They, They push Christianity away because they know that the change is great. They know that the risk of embarrassment is great. 
and they keep God at a distance and they ignore the most important person in their life, the God who made them and his son who came to be our redeemer. Are you too afraid to risk approaching God? You should be serious about it. You should realize it will change everything. But you know what? It's pointless to put that day off because one day you're going to have to face him anyway. Jesus is coming to judge us. And we're going to have to meet the very one that we've tried to run away from. So, defy your fears. Step forward and seek God if you never have done before. This camp is the best place to do that and come and receive the real life that he offers you in Christ. So that's the first thing that the uh, the preacher says to us. Seize the day before it becomes yesterday. Second point, enjoy your youth before it is yesterday. And actually I've got that wrong. It's verses 7 to 10. Verses 7 to 10. Was there somebody noisy here at the weekend called Megan? Our daughter, Megan. If Meg is here, you know about it. Was that, is that a fair representation of the weekend? She hasn't really warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> she hadn't got into a stride properly. Hadn't been on the trampolines long enough. Megan was born in 1997. And I remember that morning vividly. Not just because of the things that her mother said during labour, but also um, <laughs> because of the wonderful moment when that baby's been born and the midwife passes her in a towel to the dad and I held Megan for the first time on the sixth floor of the Ipswich maternity block and I walked her to the window (laughs) and I walked her to the window and it was 3.15 in the morning and there were some lights on outside and I said hello Megan there's the world you've seen it for the first time very silly thing to say isn't it and I remember but you do that, you know. Um, I remember driving home at about five o'clock that morning and it was April and there was a ribbon of light cobalt blue along the horizon of the black sky and it was just dawning as I went over Rushmere Heath towards Kesgrave. Um, and I've never forgotten that, that strip of light, the first sun rising on the first day of her life. Well, look what the preacher says here in verse 7. Light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. What a wonderful moment to show her light for the first time in her life. You, know, you laugh about that, but your parents did that to you. <laughs> there was a day when you saw the light for the first time. How wonderful to get up each day and see daylight for another day. Remember that tomorrow morning. Light is sweet. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. And then he adds, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. That's really strong stuff, isn't it? You know, you're just enjoying the light of the morning and life is vanity. That's really hard, isn't it? But actually what he's saying is this. You need to learn that the light of youth needs to be contrasted with the growing darkness of old age. Okay, How do we handle the light of youth, the joy of youth? We are to enjoy it. Yes, Christians say you can enjoy being young. All right, it's allowed. (laughs) Old fogies like me don't want to spoil your fun. Yeah. 
People think of Ecclesiastes as a gloomy book. Yeah? Oh, all this meaningless vanity and all the rest of it. And he's despairing of life and it's meaningless, meaningless. Eugene Peterson says it's smoke, smoke. It's all just smoke. It's his, his translation of vanity of vanities. You know, it's all terribly depressing. But as I said earlier, vanity here really means it's passing, it's fleeting. And life goes by quicker than you think. But while we have life, we should enjoy the life that God has given us and we should glorify him in the way that we use that life. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. When we're young, we are in the beautiful prime of life and our hearts are full of desire for life, to get on, to do things. We're full of energy, full of ideas, full of zeal, full of urgency. That's brilliant. That's a gift from God. Don't let anyone ever put that down uh, and, and condemn you for that. Our eyes have a vision for what he might, for what life can offer. And the preacher says, walk in those ways. Get on in life. But... You only have one life, so use it well. Do you ever think about that? You've only got one life, and you've already used up mm, 20, 25% of it. Who knows how long? It might be a much shorter life than you expect. Are you going to spend your life fruitfully for God? Are you going to spend your life serving him? How does God want you to use your life for him? And here's the other thing. Know this also. For all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Verse 9. You're going to have to answer to God for the way that you have used your life. That's true for every single one of us. We're going to have to answer God for the way that we've spent our life. Each of us is a sinner and therefore there's going to be a great deal of failure to confess before God, isn't there? And you know, that, that fact, the fact that we are a sinner is a huge bad news to the woke generation, isn't it? Uh, to the, the young people who think they can drive evil out of society by their sheer activism. Have you noticed that in all the sort of protests that go on, you know, stamping down on racism and stamping down on injustice and stamping down on poverty and all the rest of it, the evil is always seen as being in other people. You notice that? The people who are campaigning never think that they are part of the evil. They always see that evil as being in someone else, especially somebody older and richer. We are only going to get to the root of these problems if we find them in our own hearts. We are sinners. We cannot make ourselves righteous. We need a Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. Only he can change the world around us. And verse 10 is very, very interesting in in this context. Verse 10, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Youth is a passing stage of life, and we'll be middle-aged before we know it. Look at what happens when you get married. (laughs) 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 
And it's easy for our hearts to be eaten up by anger, all right, and vexation. And it seems like, I don't know what it is, is it just the pandemic or have we just been angrier these last couple of years? Yeah? It's easy to be angry at the injustices of the world. And that word pain here in verse 10, put away pain from your body, it's probably better um, translated evil. The preacher says we, could, we should take care of our physical and mental health. And that means we have to take our anger and vexation to God. God hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. In the book of Psalms, he tells, gives us Psalms to pray about the, the evils of the wicked and the injustices of the world. We bring those things to him and he gives us the power to change our lives, to change our habits, to change our thoughts and our attitudes and to bless the lives of others. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're fleeting. They're passing. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. What's missing in the current culture of, of protest and agitation? What's missing is turning to God, isn't it? None of those big marches are turning to God, our creator. When we're trying to reorder the way the world works, why don't we turn to the one who made it? Why don't we seek his wisdom? Does anybody actually stop to think this is God's world, not ours? And if we grasp that thought, then our entire attitude to the creation, our entire attitude to life, to other people, would be transformed. And does anybody stop to think about not what other people have done, but what we have done? to reject God. And yet, in spite of that, what God has done to redeem us in his Son. Remember this God and find the riches of what he's done in Christ and let that shape your life. Then you can begin to enjoy your youth before it is yesterday. <clears throat> Finally, tomorrow, all your troubles won't be far away. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and therefore they came under the curse of death and so did you and so did I. That affects all of us. Thankfully, for most of us, death is not a quick process. It starts, you know, in midlife um, and, and the seeds of death set in. We cannot run as fast as we used to. Um, I hug my son and feel the strength I used to have. <laughs> He's now his. <laughs> that's, that's what happens, folks. You know, you just, the muscle power isn't there. <clears throat> it's gone to the next generation. Um, and what we have here in Ecclesiastes 12 is a wonderfully poetic description of that process of <coughs> aging. And you know what? This is the point where young people think they can switch off. Yeah, you know, this is, this is for David and me and in a few years' time for Paul. And, you know, this is for us older ones. This is for you, all right? Watch what is already happening to us, okay? <laughs> Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before, that's the powerful word, isn't it? Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Live your life now before you age and die. The joy and energy of youth wears off in your 30s, all right? It's gone. Why is it people retire from their Olympic career? 
in the, when they're 29 or 30. Well, there's a reason for that, isn't there? The days when life seems to be in, you know, full, super high definition gives way to a sort of, you know, life just gets a bit greyer. And I think what the writer is, the preacher is talking about here, um, he's talking about our moods, yeah? When you're young and idealistic, everything seems brilliant technicolor, doesn't it? But then there will come the days when you say, I have no pleasure in them. The sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. I don't think he's talking about the weather. I think he's talking about our mental health. I think he's talking about our moods. He's talking about our perception of life. You know, you're too old to be the England cricket captain. And then suddenly you realise you're older than the Prime Minister and you're older than the England cricket selectors and... Um, all those dreams of what you could have been begin to fade. And then your friends start to die, some of them before their time. And you find routines very comforting. And then someone younger comes along and decides to change them all. And you get very disorientated. And the combined effect of that is, is like clouds that keep on returning after rain. And then your body starts to give you jip. Um, this description here is wonderful. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble, what are the keepers of the, what are the keepers of the house? They are your hands. Yes. What's the first thing when you greet someone? You put a hand out. When you go to a big country house, who comes to the door? The butler, the keeper of the house. Good to see you, sir. You know, and it's the hands that greet people, isn't it? And then they're trembling. Yeah. Um, and then the, the strong men are bent. Your knees don't hold you up as well as they used to. And then your teeth fall out. The grinders cease because they are few. And those, those who look through the windows are dimmed. Is there somebody there? You know, and you're looking into my eyes and you're saying, hello. <laughs> you know, and, and wondering if, the, if you're awake and all that sort of thing. People greet you like nosy neighbours looking in on you just to see if you're still with us, you know. We'll take you out for a walk later. <coughs> yeah. The doors on the street are shut. Well, you're deaf. Yeah. The ears don't work as well as they used to. And um, the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. So, so the background noise is just sort of whirring away like the sound of the bouncy castle out there and then suddenly the bugle sounds and it makes you startle because you actually hear it and you aren't used to loud noises and when you go outdoors what happens verse 5 they're so afraid also of what is high the front doorstep and terrors are in the way what does the niv have there does it say there are lions in the streets or something dangers. dangers in the street there you go um and 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 steps have got turn into cliffs and, and you're terrified of having a fall and you some people genuinely are terrified of having a fall and gray hair means that the almond tree has blossomed and it blossoms in some of us quite soon doesn't it there are gray beards on camp yeah um, and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails all all the potency and the energy of youth is gone and then death itself comes because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. 
And there's a picture here in verse 6 of the fragility of life. The silver cord is snapped. Imagine a, a, a lamp, an oil lamp, and it's got a little sort of hook on the top and it's hung on a silver string. And the silver string snaps and the, and the lamp crashes and smashes and the light goes out. Or there's a well and there's a winding gear and it winds a bucket up and down the well and then the winding gear is broken and the bucket falls into the well and breaks. And that's just a very, very poetic description of death, isn't it? That it falls apart, life breaks apart just so much quicker than you expected it. All the way through the book, the preacher has been preparing us for this moment. But what can he tell us about death? Well, actually not very much because he's just echoing the language of of Genesis 1 to 3, isn't he? When he says in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. How old was John Lennon when he died? He was 40. It's 41 years ago that he was shot in New York, shot dead by one of his fans who was obsessive and we don't quite understand why. He had written wistfully of yesterday And imagine there's no heaven. And in a way, I suppose, he would sign up to what the preacher said here. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Shakespeare put it this way. Life's but a a, a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You see, if you believe the worldview of John Lennon, and Paul McCartney, that you know, yesterday is what we want to get back to, and there is no heaven, there is no life after death, that is all you are left with. But, God has intervened in history, in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus lived the perfect righteous life, the life we would love to live while we're young, but we never succeed in living. He lived it so he can show us that life can be different. He lived it to reveal God to us so there is no doubt that God is real. And when he died and cried out, it is finished, it felt like you know, that word vanity was echoing around the creation. God himself in the person of his son had died. What sort of master is that? Why is it worth following him? seemed like the ultimate act of futility to his disciples, didn't it? The Roman Empire, their their religious enemies have conquered their master. But by his death, he has redeemed us from futility. He has redeemed us from being trapped in a hopeless life. He has defeated death. He drew the sting of death by dying himself paying for our sin by his death. And he broke death's power by rising from the dead. 
And so that first Easter morning, all the futility of the ages, the echo that comes again and again through the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity, that's finally silenced by the risen life of Jesus. The light of the Easter morning was sweet and pleasant for the eyes to see the sun of that great morning. All the hopelessness of ageing was reversed as Jesus triumphed over death. And although we age and although we die, we have the certain hope of resurrection. So, since Jesus has risen from the dead, what are you going to do with your life? That's the big question, isn't it? What are you living for? Is it fame? Is it celebrity? Is it glory? Is it glamour? Is it a never-dying youth? Because that looks more and more pathetic the older you get, doesn't it? Or are you living for God's glory? To serve Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. To make his name known. To extend his kingdom. Life is short. You only have one life. Use it well. Live it for God's glory.